The scripture reading today is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. Exodus 20, 1 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, am the Lord, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me pray once again. Father, uh, we come before your word. We want to see into your word for your word sees into us. And Lord, if we are to see it rightly, you will have to open our eyes, and I pray that you would do that, and that uh, you would preserve what is true and what is good for us to hear uh, in in this this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are, one of the most famous passages of the Bible, the Ten Commandments. Even people who don't know much about the Bible know that they have Ten Commandments somewhere in there. Now there are many books about the Ten Commandments and there are a wide variety of opinions about how we should approach them. Um, And there are questions. Are are they still for us today? Uh, Why did God give the Ten Commandments? You know, we insist, and, and rightly so, that we are saved by faith through grace alone. And further, we insist that those in the Old Testament Abraham, David, Ruth, Isaiah, all these people who are famous, they are saved by faith through grace. If that's true, then, then what's the deal with the commandments? Why are they there? Uh, and, and how do they relate to, to us? And, and what's the point of even studying it now? Now, I don't think all of these questions are glib. Um, some may be. But to answer them, we, we have to step back a bit. Now, if you've been around the church any length of time, you will be familiar, at least you'll have heard, of the term covenant. A covenant is a solemn agreement between two parties. There are better and longer definitions of covenant, but that's the one we're, we're going to use. Um, generally, there's an exchange of oaths, but sometimes it's a unilateral promise uh, made by God. Now, God works out his purpose through covenants. 
the language God uses with Adam has a covenantal feel to it. And you can see God's purpose as he talks about Adam. Look at uh, Genesis 5 says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So God's purpose, his express purpose, is to communicate himself to the world. So he, he makes man in his own image. He says, I want the world to see something about me. So he, he creates man in his image. And then when man propagates, has children, he says, yeah, the, and these children are made in the image of the man that God created. So God wants us to see something about himself. Now, not too much later, we have the flood. Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord, and he and his family are rescued. And Noah is presented as a kind of new Adam. God makes a promise, a covenant, that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. Now, there are many things to take away from that episode, but I, I want us to see that God is drawing special attention to the fact with the rainbow, and he says, I'm never going to do this. God says, I'm making a promise, and I'm never going to break it. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. Now, as you know, sin quickly reappears on the scene, and God starts again. This time, with Abraham. And God promises to Abraham that through him and his descendants, although he was as good as dead, he is going to create a new nation. And through that new nation, all the world would be blessed. And God kept his promise through an old man and an old woman who were barren. He creates the nation of Israel. Now, why do I go through all this? Because Exodus 19 through 24 is the establishment of another covenant. Exodus 19 kind of sets up the background and the purpose of the covenant, and Kevin covered that last week. Chapter 20 has the Ten Commandments, or as they sometimes are referred to, the Ten Words. The first verse is, and God spoke all these words. That's why they're called the Ten Words. Chapters 21 through 23 are judgments. Now, what's the difference? The, the commandments are absolute commands. There's no context. There's no special situation. Thou shalt not steal. End of story, period. The judgments say, well, when this happens, you do this. There's a little more context in, in, in how they get applied, and they're judgments. The rest of the Pentateuch has many more of those. They're general injunctions that are tied to a specific social situation. Now, chapter 24, the covenant is ratified, and the people agree to the covenant and pledge faithfulness to God. The roles are very clear. God as Father and King, and the people of Israel are obedient son in a relationship of loyalty, love, obedience, and trust. Now, as Kevin brought out last week, God's purpose for this covenant, according to Exodus 19.6, is that there would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Again, as Kevin said, priests represent man to God and God to man. 
Now, the Ten Commandments are a reflection of the character of the nation of Israel that Israel was to image to the world. Now, like Adam bore God's image, God wants the nation of Israel to bear his image. And, he, and he, in the Ten Commandments, he fleshes out more of what his character is like to the watching world. Now, this, uh, as, as Kevin quoted last week, this, this nation of uh, a priest idea is picked up in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our purpose, both individually and collectively, can be boiled down to this. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. That's what we're about. Now, how does the Ten Commandments relate to this? Now, in Judaism, the Torah is the law of God as revealed to Moses. In re it's covered in the first five books of the Bible. We sometimes call it the Pentateuch. In Judaism, they call it the Torah. Now, there are multiple references to the law in the rest of Scripture, but the core of it is right here in what we call the Mosaic Covenant in chapters 19 through 24, and especially in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. Covenants are usually named after the human participant in the covenant. Together, all these covenants in the Old Testament are called the Old Covenant. Covenant is actually a, a Latinized word that means Testament is a Latinized word that means covenant. It, if you, so it's Old Covenant and New Covenant. That's how they refer to the books of the Bible. We, we use Testament. Now, I'm sure this is review to many of you. But getting a handle on these matters is critically important. Now, the interpretation and relation of the covenants, that's the basis for why we have different denominations. We, we slice and dice these things differently. But how Jesus and the Old Testament are to be understood has always been an issue. It hasn't been an issue just since the church got started. It was an issue when Jesus was on earth. At the end of John chapter 5, Jesus has a very pointed exchange with the Jewish leaders. And I want to draw your attention to two of the points he made at the end of John 5. The first is in John 5.39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The second is verse 46 and 47. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, if we didn't believe the Old Testament applied to us, we wouldn't be preaching through Exodus. But the key to understanding how it applies to us is to understand how it applies to Jesus. And when we get a better handle on that, we are better equipped to declare His excellencies to one another and to the world. So how does the law, the Mosaic Code, relate to Jesus? 
Well, at one level, that answer is pretty easy because Jesus tells us the Sermon on the Mount is contained in Matthew 5 through 7. In it, Jesus makes repeated references to the law. But he says something curious early on. Verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will, pa will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, why is that curious? Well, for me anyway, it's curious because of that word, fulfill. What do you think of as fulfill? You go to place an order, and then someone goes in the back and gets whatever you ordered, and that's fulfilling it. I mean, I get fulfill in terms of reference to the prophets. The prophets describe what will happen, and when it happens, we say, well, it's been fulfilled. But what about the law? I think of the law as something to be obeyed. Now, I think Matthew picked up on Jesus' use of the word fulfill, and it colors his gospel account. In the first two chapters of Matthew's gospel, five times Matthew says something like, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. And he would has an Old Testament reference. Now clearly, he's not just relating a record of the life of Jesus. He is tying Jesus to the Old Testament and saying, hey, this is, this is a fulfillment. Now some of these examples are really straightforward. Isaiah says a virgin shall conceive, and Jesus is born of a virgin. Micah prophesies that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, and Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Now, it'd be impossible to overstate just how significant these fulfillments are. In Isaiah 46, God says, this is who I am. He distinguishes himself from other gods and says, who else can tell you what's going to happen and then bring it about? No other god can do that. But I want to draw your attention to the third fulfillment Matthew records. The context is that Mary and Joseph had fled Egypt when the Lord had warned Joseph in a dream that Herod intended to kill Jesus. Matthew 2, verses 14 and 15. And he rose, took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. That's a quotation of Hosea 11. Now, Hosea 11, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, clearly, in Hosea, God is speaking about Israel's history. So, is, is Matthew just kind of thumbing through the Old Testament, looking for Egypt, found it, and says, yeah, this is a fulfillment? Some people say, well, it's not really a fulfillment. This is sad because they're missing something beautiful. Matthew, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is recasting the Exodus. The Exodus from Egypt 
is the defining national event in the nation's history. Their calendars started with the Exodus. But how does a reference from a past event work to be a fulfillment in Matthew's account of the early life of Jesus? Matthew is showing how in the life of Jesus, the Exodus is replayed in a new way. Jacob and his family wound up in Egypt in order to survive. They had no grain, they needed to eat. Jesus wound up in Egypt because if his earthly family stayed in Bethlehem, they would have died. But Jesus is more than a new and better Moses. Jesus is also a new and better son, a new and better Israel. In Jesus' story, we see him embody and replay the role of Israel itself. This is the way the story plays out in the next five chapters of Matthew. Israel was in Egypt. Jesus was in Egypt. Pharaoh killed the baby boys in Egypt. Herod killed the baby boys in Bethlehem. Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea and the River Jordan. Jesus went through the waters of the baptism at the Jordan. Moses gave the law at Mount Sinai. Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, the true interpretation of the law. And early on in that sermon, Jesus says, I come to fulfill the law. Jesus fulfills the law by obeying it, but also by revealing its promise. When Jesus comes, the law takes on a different meaning and function. Its role of prophecy ends, for Jesus is the end, the telos, the goal of the law. For this reason, once Jesus has come, God's people never think of the law in the same way. We must not miss this prophetic function of the law. As we've seen, God's law is not an abstract moral code. Such a code would not be prophetic. God's law is given in the course of his saving work, and that whole work is leading to Jesus Christ. The Ten Commandments are a character portrait of Jesus. Now, we tend to flinch when we hear the word commandment. You know, just one more thing to do. And the knee-jerk response to a requirement is resistance. We want to chart our own course. This is evidence of how broken we are. I found this paragraph from Peter Lightheart so compelling. It's worth quoting in full. According to Scripture, Torah is the perfect law of liberty. James 1, James 2. A community dominated by disrespect for parents, workaholism, violence, envy, theft, and lies isn't free. Besides, absolute freedom is impossible. In the world God made, the world that actually exists, things aren't free to do or be anything they please. They're free when they become what they are. An acorn is free to become an oak, not an elephant. The ten words guide Israel to grow up, to be what he is, the son who rules in his father's house. Now, I'd like to spend the rest of our time 
this morning, walking through the Ten Commandments with an eye towards how they find their fulfillment in Jesus and are transformed by Jesus. The first commandment. Now the last verse of chapter 19 tells us that Moses is down at the bottom of the mountain with the people. There's fire and wind and smoke and the mountains are trembling. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Similar to the creation account, God is speaking to bring about something new. In his plan for this people, whom God has referred to as his son in Exodus 4, God lays out a plan for freedom. We could paraphrase it, I freed you from bondage, now live as free people. Perhaps you hear this as forbidding idol worship, and it does. But consider this from David Pallinson. Do you fear the opinions of others? Are you paralyzed by worry about how your father or your mother will evaluate you? You've set up an idol, a substitute judge, public opinion, a perfectionistic father, a hypercritical mother. Have you ever thought, if only we had a bit more money, our lives would be happy. If only I could get a better job or enjoy a flawlessly decorated home, life would be good. You're looking at a counterfeit savior, money, success, velvety comforts. When you're cornered, do you lash out and blame others? Do you have so much trouble admitting your sins that you scapegoat your wife or husband, your parents or children? Or do you flagellate yourself for your failures or perceived failures? You're an idolater, dumping sins on scapegoats and treating yourself as a dime store Jesus. Even the enemies of Jesus recognize that Jesus lived as one who is free. When they're trying to set him up with questions, they say, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, they were trying to set him up, but what they, they had a basis for that. You're, you're free from other people's opinions. God wants us to be free. Now, Israel kept falling back into idol worship. Just a few chapters, we'll, we'll get to it. So do we. We fall into idol worship. Jesus lived in utter devotion to the Father, even to the death. But in him... And in his death, idols are destroyed. The second commandment, you shall not make yourself a carved, a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in a water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandment. 
This is not a prohibition on images. God directs very soon in making the tabernacle various images to be included. It's a prohibition on serving an image or believing we honor God by honoring an image. Remember what's going on. The people do not see God. They just have His words. Any image would be a distortion. In Jesus, God has been seen. The living word tabernacled, lived among us. And John says we beheld His glory. We honor God not by making our own images, but by serving one another who are made in the image of God. Third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now this is much more than a prohibition against swearing. Using God's name is a serious act because God himself is present in his name and all his acts reveal his name. God gave Aaron the blessing that we've used many, many times. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. He said to Aaron, when you do this, you put my name on the people. When we are baptized, it's in the triune name of God. And we get, when we are baptized, when we become a Christian, when we get a new identity, a new history, membership into a new family. Jesus took the name when he answered the Pharisees before I, Abraham was, I am. Now the cost of bearing that name was his life. And because of his obedience to this command, the Father has given him a name that is above every name. He did not take that name in vain. The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Most of the commandments are negations. This is the first of the two positive commandments. It's also the commandment that uh, collects the most commentary. Paul saw it as passing away. Many see it as an anticipation of eternal rest. More than abstaining from work, we are to live in the rest Christ gives us, in, the, in Christ's Sabbath. Work is good. Work preceded the fall. Human dominion over the world is commanded, but God requires that we interrupt our work to acknowledge Him as Lord. To regularly cease from our work in order to acknowledge God as Lord, it's, it's a public confession that our authority over His, his dominion is, is a derived authority. 
And more than that, our hope is not in the work of our hands. Our hope is in God. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man. Now, people who are wiser and more godly than me, they they have different ideas about how this could be applied. But something I'm sure is true is that our hearts yearn for rest. If you struggle and do not feel rest, perhaps a deliberate break from work to reorient your heart and your mind to God is His gift to you. Jesus said, come to me, I will give you rest. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In the Bible, authority is good. And parental authority is the original form of authority. We are not self-made. Our parents, our communities, these are all imposed on us. We didn't choose them. And these relationships have a moral weight. Your parents are not God. But they are God's gift to you and as you are God's gift to your parents. The way we treat our parents should resemble the way we respond to God. Ephesians says all fatherhood derives from God. For our, after all, he's the only one who gives life. But he has arranged things that we have fatherhood and motherhood. And the dignity and privilege of parents is tied to their capacity to symbolize our Heavenly Father. And this commandment reveals the inner life of God. The Son honors His Father. He trusts His Father. He submits to His Father. He hears His Father, gives the words of His Father weight, and submits to His Father, sending Him into the world to die. And on that basis, the Father glorifies the Son. And through that death, we have life. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder, Exodus 20, 13. Human life is protected because we are made in the image of God. Now Jesus addressed this commandment in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoa. You might say, hey, I think you're really kind of stretching the text here. This is about murder, and all of a sudden you've gone into what we call to each other. That's because we're like the Pharisee who wants to know just, just who is my neighbor? Where, where do my obligations end? That's what I'm interested in finding out. Jesus sees through that. Because people are made in God's image, it matters how we speak to them and about them. 
we might say, I'm not afraid to speak my mind, or I like to tell it straight. And we use that as a justification for cutting one another with a sword. People are made in God's image, and we may not mar them physically or with our words. Jesus did not take life, but he gave it, and he gave it abundantly. His words are not harmful. His words are not death. His words are life. Seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. We live in an age that pushes sexual autonomy. Anything that happens between consenting adults is okay. The seventh commandment blasts that human barricade away. It says, what you do behind closed doors is not just your business. It's God's business. And if you thought that was bad enough, Jesus takes it further. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The Bible demands that we channel all our sexual desire into a single narrow path. And that is lifelong commitment in a heterosexual marriage. God treats sexual activity as a matter of public concern. If we read further into the Pentateuch, we're going to see that there are sexual activities that are labeled as crimes, crimes that are punishable by death. Now, it is true, these rules help maintain social order and keeping families intact is a basis for a stable society and provides the best environment for children. But that's to miss what's really at stake. Sex and marriage are theological realities from beginning to end. Sex is a pointer to God's love for his bride. It is not primarily for children. It's primarily to point to God's love for his people. Promiscuity is wrong because it distorts the image of God who loves one bride. Homosexuality is wrong because it is contrary to the union of different but complementary beings. Adultery is wrong because it violates the faithfulness which lies at the heart of the very meaning of marriage. Sexual faithfulness in marriage and sexual purity outside of marriage aren't mere demands of the law. Sexual faithfulness preaches the gospel. This is how, pardon me, this is how Jesus fulfills this commandment by living and dying out of a passionate and exclusive love for his bride. That's us. The Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. The Eighth Commandment parallels earlier commit commandments forbidding idolatry. It's kind of idolatry 
made practical. Um, we steal because we believe that ever we steal is going to satisfy us somehow. And in our culture, we're encouraged to see stuff as being really helpful in making us happy. I say this when all the Black Friday ads are coming out. Some good deals out there. These things hold a real power over us. And there really are nice things out there. How, how are we to think about them? A lot could be said, but I, I want to use one reference from 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, I don't care how big your student loans are. If you're listening, you are rich in this world, comparatively. But that's not really the point. The point is that whatever we have has been provided by God. And if there's something that you don't have, the reason you don't have it is because God hasn't provided it. And like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we are not satisfied with paradise if one desirable thing is withheld. Adam and Eve took from a tree that wasn't theirs, and all their children, that's us, are thieves, stealing glory from God and stuff from one another. One another's that bear God's image. But Jesus, who did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, fulfilled this command by humbling himself to become a man. As it says in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The ninth commandment. You shall bear false witness. You shall not bear false witness. That's bad. Uh, not bear false witness against your neighbor. The ninth commandment enjoins us to practice truthful speech. Lying, I think, is another case of idolatry. We believe our reputation or our cause is more important than telling the truth. Yes, there are complicated cases, and the Bible has some of them, but most of us aren't really busy with hiding Israelite spies or Jews from marauding hordes of Nazis. No, our concerns are a little more pedestrian. We're just trying to save face. We don't want to be embarrassed. Jesus didn't just speak the truth. He fulfilled this commandment because he was the truth. You think about the truth as being a person? Well, well it is. When we speak truthfully, we honor Jesus. That 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. <coughs> the last commandment is different than all the others. You can break this commandment all day long and no one will know. 
Instead of focusing on what we do, it focuses on what we want to do. It's worth noting that desire is not forbidden. It's, it's assumed. What's forbidden is desiring of that which rightfully belongs to another. Desire moves us towards the object because we want to make it ours. Now other religions, and Buddhism is well known for this, teach that freedom is found in the death of desire. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus does not call us to desire less, but more. When Jesus threw out the money changers in John 2, his disciples understood he did that because it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Think about Psalm 40. I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. Zeal and desire are powerfully evident in the life of Jesus. But he didn't covet. How could he do that? I think Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us how. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Here's the key who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Michael read from Psalm 16, last verse, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what Jesus has gone in for. And that's how we deal with covetousness. We, we go for a superior pleasure than whatever is promised that belongs to someone else. <sighs> Jesus fulfilled the law, not by diminishing it, but by deepening it. Yahweh spoke all these words and he wrote them on stone. They are a character portrait of Jesus, the Son of God. The law has multiple functions, but the first and most significant is that it points to Christ. Exodus 19 says all this happened in the third month. Many centuries later, after Sinai, God returned in the third month in rushing wind and fire to pour out His Spirit. At that Pentecost, the Spirit began to write, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3, not on stone, but on the heart. He is forming a new Israel, a company of sons who share the Jesus spirit of sonship and understanding God as Father. Romans 8 tells us that by the Spirit, the righteous requirements of the law are now being fulfilled in us. So, are the Ten Commandments for us today? Yes, because Jesus is for us today. 
Let me close in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, give us eyes to see you. Oh, you, I thank you for your work that you will certainly bring to pass of turning us in, of changing us to become like Christ. Uh, may we re- joyfully participate in that work. In Jesus' name, amen.